Father, we ask that you would stir our hearts with the hope of Zion City. Lord, we ask that you would make us those who long to walk there with the King and make that longing so strong that it compels us to turn away from sin, to rejoice in the midst of suffering and affliction, to stay true to your word, and to fight the fight, to keep the faith, to finish the course, that one day we might receive the crown of life that is laid up for us. Lord, make it so, we ask, in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit, amen. I would invite you to open the Bible this morning. If you didn't bring one, there's one in the pew in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you can take that one with you. I would invite you to open to Psalm 108, Psalm 108. And what we are uh, looking at this morning is evidence that the Bible is like a great mystery novel. It's this sprawling, ramshackle narrative that is interlaced with poetry, and the poetry is about the story. And as I was thinking about this, as we sang this last song, I couldn't help but think of this refrain near the end of book seven of the Harry Potter novels, in which Peeves, the poltergeist, says, uh, we potter, we potter, we potter's the one, now Voldy's gone moldy, so let's have some fun. Now that little, that little piece of poetry, that corresponds to, to the story. It's about what's gone on in the wider story. And what we're looking at here in Psalm 108 is about the story. What's, what's interesting about this is that it's not like, I mean, the Bible is kind of an instruction guide, but it's, it's not like there's a separate instruction guide that's telling you how to read the Bible. You have to learn how to read the Bible from the Bible itself. You have to come to this, this mystery novel, and you have to piece the clues together and thereby find your way. So before we look at Psalm 108, let me invite you to look back at Psalm 57 and just quickly scan your eyes over verses 7 through 11 of Psalm 57. You don't have to read every word, just sort of pass your eyes over what you see there. And then if you look back at Psalm 108, what you'll see is that almost word for word, Psalm 108 verses 1 through 4, I'm sorry, 1 through 5, repeats Psalm 57, verses 7 through 11. It's almost verbatim. And then, if you, if you if, maybe you kept a finger at Psalm 57, if you look at Psalm 60, and in verses 6 through 13, that's what you have in Psalm 108, verses 6 through 13. What this means is that the whole of Psalm 108 consists of a piece of Psalm 57, and a piece of Psalm 60. And it's not the beginning of Psalm 57 either. And, and I think that's important because Psalm 108 begins a song, a Psalm of David. Okay, so what we've got are clues here. Let me put the clues in front of you and let's piece them together and try, and try to make sense of the direction in which these clues in this mystery novel, what, what, the, what, their point, what kind of conclusion they're pointing us to. Um, the end of Psalm 57... Uh, it's, it's about the king, King David, praising the Lord, right? 
And then the bit of Psalm 60, if you look at it, if you glance at Psalm 108 or Psalm 60, either way, it's about the Lord saying, in essence, that land of Canaan, that's my land. And those peoples that inhabit that land, I'm going to smash them. Okay, so the first part of Psalm 108, the, Lord, the, the, the king is praising the Lord, and he's doing it from Psalm 57. Second part of Psalm 108, the Lord is saying, that's my land, and I'm going to exercise dominion over those peoples that, it, that have claimed my land. And then the king at the end says, who's going to lead me into the besieged city? Who's going to take me to Edom, right? And obviously the answer is the Lord, right? So what is going on here? Why, why would we have these... These two psalms combined in Psalm 108. Well, look at the superscription of Psalm 108. It says, a song, a psalm of David. Okay, so now uh, the first words of Psalm 108 are drawn from the end of Psalm 57, near the end, verse 7. And there's only like 12 verses, so it's like the last third of the psalm. And I think that indicates that the superscription is a new creation. It's a new, a new superscription for a newly created psalm that consists of Psalm 57 and Psalm 60, all right? Now, we put this evidence together, and here's what I would propose. David himself, right? This is a psalm of David, Psalm 108. David himself looked at these earlier two compositions of it that, he, that he had created, and he said, those are fine in their own right. They're going to go in the book of Psalms, but I'm going to make from them a new psalm. And then I think there's a further step in his thought process and in the, in the thought process of those who put the psalms in the final order, we're going to place this psalm at a strategic location in the whole book of psalms. And we're, we're going to cue the readers of the psalms to know what's going on by these other clues that we're going to lay down. It's like breadcrumbs, right? On this path, and you're trying to trace out the breadcrumbs and find your way out of the maze, okay? So here's some more clues for us. Uh, you've noticed that all through the Psalms, you have these, these uh, superscriptions, these headings that will link back to David's life, right? Like Psalm 3, uh, when he fled from before Absalom, his son. Psalm 51, when he went into Bathsheba and Nathan came to him, right? You know these superscriptions. You may have noticed, may or may not have noticed, that all of those are in the first, uh, first two books of the Psalms, Psalms 1 through 71, after Psalm 72, you get no more historical notices in the book of Psalms. No more of these links back into the life of David. And after Psalm 72, Psalm 72 is uh, for Solomon. So it's kind of like you've got David's life in Psalms 1 through 71, 72 kind of including his prayer for Solomon. And then you go into the life of David's sons, Psalm 72 through 89. Jerusalem falls in Psalm 89. The Davidic king is removed. The people are exiled from the land. And then we've talked about this the last few weeks. Look at Psalm 106, 47. Save us, O Lord, and gather us from among the nations. Bring us back to the land, Lord. We've been scattered, exiled, just as Moses prophesied, by the way. So in a mystery novel, you've got to pay attention, right? You have to have noticed, oh, Moses told us. The people are going to go into the land, break the covenant, and be scattered among the nations. But from there, they'll seek the Lord, and the Lord will gather them and bring them back. So save us, O Lord, and gather us from among the nations. And then we've noted how Psalm 107 begins. Look at verse 2. Let the redeemed, the saved ones, those whom he has redeemed from trouble, verse 3, and gathered in from the lands. So here's what I think is happening. Uh, the people that put the book of Psalms together... 
It's like they're saying, okay, Psalm 106 is the end of the exile. They're crying out for redemption and regathering. Psalm 107 is now written, and Psalm 107 and book 5 is now written as though the exile is over. The redemption has happened. The Lord has gathered his people back. And then David puts this psalm in that's a psalm of David. And at this point, I don't think we're dealing with the historical David because we got all the historical stuff back in books one and two. At this point, I think the David in view is the future David, the new king, the future king from David's line. So here's what I would propose is happening. David is taking his own words and he's saying this is like a paradigm for what the Messiah is going to do. The words of praise that we're going to have here in 108, 1 through 5, and the words of confidence that God is going to give the victory that we'll have in the second half of the psalm. So David, here's what I would propose. David is saying, my life is like a pattern or like a a prefiguring shadow, a type, you might say, of the future king from my line. And the way that I praise the Lord in Psalm 57 is the way that he's going to praise the Lord. And the way that the Lord promised him victory over all the nations of the land and and conquest of the land is the way the Lord is going to give him victory and conquest of the land. That's what we're going to have in Psalm 108. And then Psalm 109 is another prayer of David. And what we're going to have there is, is a prayer of imprecation against an enemy. And again, here's what I would propose. It's like David is saying, okay, there were people that betrayed me in my life, and I prayed these kinds of prayers against them. And my life is a pattern of what's going to happen in the life of the one to come. So the one to come is going to need an imprecatory prayer. And uh, if you were listening, if you're paying attention, when Randall read Acts chapter 1, Luke an inspired author, the inspired author of the book of Acts, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Luke quotes Psalm 69 from David's life as being fulfilled in what happened with Judas, and he quotes Psalm 109 as being fulfilled in what happened with Judas. So what, what I'm proposing to you, I think, is the way that the New Testament authors are interpreting the Psalms. That is, what happened in David's life is like a preview of what's happening, what's going to happen in the Messiah's life. And once we get into book five, we're not talking about the historical David anymore. We're talking about the future king from his line. So let's look together at Psalm 108. And um, we have, even though we've covered this material in Psalm 57 and 60, which interestingly, if you, if you look at commentaries on the, on the Psalms, often they'll get to Psalm 108 and it's like, See Psalm 57, see Psalm 60, I'm done, I'm moving on. That's not what we're going to do. Because I think the the combination of these elements warrant consideration of what's going on here. So look at what we have, Psalm 108. David puts on the lips of the future king these words, My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. As I thought about and read these words this week, I couldn't help but think of Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3, where Isaiah says to the Lord, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. This is what the psalmist is declaring. This is what David is saying, and this is what Jesus lived out, isn't it? Peter tells us he was entrusting himself to a faithful creator. 
Are you steadfast? Is your heart steadfast? Is your mind stayed on the Lord? I mean, it's like the Bible is saying, look, here's the path to life. Here's the way to live. Here's the way to be somebody who's calm in the midst of all the raging storms of life. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. I think this translation, make melody, is a little bit unfortunate. Um, It's a word that I I, I would propose means something like this. I'm going to tell the epic stories of what you've accomplished. I think that's what this this term that's translated make melody, they're just making it musical. But I think it's it's like uh, the psalmist is saying, I'm going to recount all of your accomplishments. So this is somebody who's singing to the Lord because he's contemplating what the Lord has done with all my being. And then in verses 2 and 3, Verse 2, he says, Awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. You see what he's saying? First thing in the morning. I'm going to bring the sun up with my praise. This guy is resolving to be someone whose mind is praising the Lord first thing in the morning. This is the way I'm going to think. Then he says in verse 3, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. So it seems like the... The emphasis is on the audience. Everybody is going to hear this from me. There's going to be gratitude and praise, and everybody's going to be aware of it. In verse 4, he tells us why he's praising the Lord. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens, higher than the highest visible horizon. Your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Do you see what's motivating this praise? What's motivating this praise is this man's experience of God's steadfast love. So maybe you don't feel this way. Maybe you don't feel my heart is steadfast. Maybe you don't feel I will sing and make melody. I will awaken the dawn. Maybe you don't feel this way. What do you do? Ask the Lord to cause you to experience steadfast love that is great above the heavens. Worship is our response to God's revelation of himself. God loves to reveal himself. This is the answer, okay? If you will experience God's steadfast love genuinely as it is, you will want to praise him. And then he goes on to say there in verse 4, your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your faithfulness, you could also render that word faithfulness, truth. Your truth reaches to the clouds. If it reaches to the clouds, it fills the whole realm of human experience, doesn't it? It's everywhere. Your truth is everywhere. Your steadfast love is above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. This is what we want to experience. We want to experience the Lord this way. We want to know God this way. And if we do, verses 1 through 3 will resonate with us. Uh, In verse 5, the psalmist, it's it's like David says, these things are true of you, God, so cause everyone to experience it. He says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. There's a a very tight connection between that statement in verse 5. Make it where your glory is everywhere. 
And what he says in verse 6, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. Do you see the connection? God, David is saying, God, show your glory over all the earth so that your beloved ones will be delivered. What's, what's the, the, the background of thought? What's the logic that informs this? I think it goes something like this. There are all these other divine powers out there. There are all these idols to which people give their allegiance, to which people look for satisfaction, that things that people live for and serve with their whole lives. And if God shows himself greater than all those things and frees him, his people from the influence of those idols, he will have shown his glory over, the, over all the earth. You see the connection? Make yourself great, Lord, so that we can be delivered. Show yourself more powerful than all these idols and all these things that people live for and worship and look to so that we can be delivered. Application. Here's, here's, here's a proposed response to this psalm. Pray for God to show himself great by delivering you. I, I don't know what kind of chains are on you. Maybe chains of fear. Maybe chains of lust or shame or anger, hatred, sloth, indifference, pride. I mean, ultimately, we're all going to die, right? And so we can even look in that direction and say, Lord, deliver me from the fear of death. Show your greatness by raising me from the dead. I'm looking to you, right? Pray for God to be exalted above the heavens where all these idols reside. Let your glory be over all the earth, all the places where these minor powers hold sway and are worshipped. Let your glory be over all the earth that your beloved ones may be delivered. Do you realize that God's glory is at stake in your life? Do you realize that God's glory is at stake every time you're tempted? Every time you're provoked? Every time you're, you're on the verge of saying something nasty to the people in your life. God's glory is at every time you're tempted to turn away in disgust and indifference to these people that are in your life. God's glory is at stake. And you should pray this way. God, exalt yourself by transforming me, by making me new, by making someone whose heart is steadfast, whose, whose mouth rejoices, and who's out of the overflow of whose heart, love comes. Show yourself great in that way that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. Now, I think David is saying, look, uh, Moab and Edom and all these people, they worship all these other deities. You show your greatness over those deities and, and deliver us from op the oppression of these other powers. And now the Lord answers in verses 7 through 9. God has promised in his holiness. With exultation I will divide up Shechem. Shechem is a portion of the land of promise. And portion out the valley of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. All these are place names in the, in the land of Canaan. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah, my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. These are foreign powers. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. What the Lord is saying is, this is my land. 
and those peoples are not going to overcome me. Again, there's a connection here, isn't there? Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. And it's like the Lord says, yes, and it's going to start from Canaan. And all those, all those places in Canaan, those are my places. And all those powers that work in Canaan, they're all going to be subjected to my authority. The Lord speaks with exaltation here. And then in response, David says in verses 10 through 13, who will bring me to the fortified city? The fortified city is a place that he needs to conquer. And, and what he's doing is he's asking a rhetorical question that has an obvious answer. And again, I would encourage you to look at your life and say, what is the realm of my life where the idols hold sway? Where the foreign powers exercise influence? Who will bring me to victory over this sin? There's a God who is exulting in response to David's plea to be exalted above the heavens and let his glory be over all the earth. Do you see this? Who will bring me to victory over my anger? Who's going to bring me to the, the gladness of humble obedience? Who will bring me to the path of righteousness? The answer is obvious, isn't it? Who will lead me to Edom? It's like David is expecting the crowd to say, the, Lord, the Lord's going to give you victory. And then in verse 11, have you not rejected us, O God? I think it, David is, it's almost like David is, is uh, being a little bit playful, I think, because he knows God hasn't rejected his people. No, the Lord has not rejected his people. You do not go out, O God, with our armies. We got defeated. Well, this, this prayer is a response to that, isn't it? And then, and then he makes the request explicit. Oh, grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. If you experience the almighty power of God, this will be your response to every human attempt to make you better. Vain is the salvation of man. Oh, they might be able to give me a 12-step uh, pattern. They might be able to give me a recipe. They might be able to explain what's going on, but they can't save my soul. They can't raise me from the dead. They can't change my heart, regenerate me, and give me new desires. Vain is the salvation of man. The Lord can change in this way. With God, verse 13, we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. So um, let, let, me, let me go back a little bit. Look, look back at verse 7, where the Lord is saying, God is promised in His holiness. And then He goes through all these places of the land. Do, do, you, do you see what's required for um, David to know that the Lord would speak this way? What's required is that David has to know God's promises. David knows God's promises. God has promised to give this land to His people. And so what's David doing? He's claiming the promises is what he's doing. Application. Know God's promises. Know what God has said He's going to do. And then lay hold of them. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. Claim it. You're going to finish this, Lord. Romans 8 Those whom He justified, He also glorified. Lord, You've justified me. Make it where... Romans 8.1 There's now no condemnation. Bring me through, Lord. 
Keep the work going. Keep me believing. Keep changing me. Keep renewing me. And then all these promises about things like a crown of life and a resurrection body and a new heavens and new earth. That's my home, Lord. Make my treasure there. Make, make Christ my treasure. We were singing that song, Christ is mine forevermore. That song ended and I thought, let's just go home. Let's just, let's just stop there and go home. That was, that was beautiful. It was wonderful, wasn't it? That's what we want to be true in our lives. Um, also, you notice how there are these questions in verses 10 through 10 and 12. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? Do you see how thinking through those questions helps us process, or helps David, let's say, process how the land is going to be conquered, how the promises are going to be, be kept, thinking through the issues. How am I going to overcome this? Where's the power going to come from? How is my heart going to be renewed so that I want something different from what I've wanted every time I've been tempted to this point in my life? Who's going to give me victory over that? Thinking it through will help you to claim the victory that the Lord promises. With, look at verse 13. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. That's another uh, Harry Potter illustration for you. Um, sorry, we're listening to book seven in the car. So this is where we are. Um, the battle for Hogwarts, the battle begins. And, and I love this, this moment when Minerva McGonagall, Professor McGonagall realizes what's going on and what's at stake and what she needs to do. And she gives this cry. This gives me chills to think about. I don't know if you've read the stories. But she gives this, she, she, she utters this, um, this incantation, this spell that sets um, all the, the, the uh, uh, coats of armor, all the statues in the, in the, in the palace, in the, in the castle. It puts them all in motion. And she says to them, do your duty to this school. It's like she's saying, stand and fight because the battle is upon us. It's, it's glorious. With God, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. That brings us to Psalm 109. But before I go there, let me say this. Jesus, the new David, the future king from David's line, he's going to lead God's people in praise, verses 1 through 5. And Revelation 19 shows how he will accomplish the new conquest. He is going to conquer the world when he comes on a white horse. The God who is worthy of all praise will exalt himself over all nations. He will establish his rule over all the earth and answer all the pleas of his people. Matt D'Amico has written, quote, We will bear fruit in this life when our roots are firmly planted in the coming new earth. As C.S. Lewis said, history shows that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Psalm 108 is celebrating the new world that God is going to conquer, which is our hope. Psalm 109. Um, this psalm is a scorching prayer. It is a scalding statement. But I'm going to propose that every time we get to the word let, we alter how we read it. Okay? And I think this will help us. Uh, because what we have here in these let statements, like for instance, uh, look, at, look at the middle of verse 6 of Psalm 109. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. 
Uh, instead of rendering that, that let, what, what you've got there is a, is a third person, he, she, or it, right? First person's I, second person's you, third person, he, she, or it. And then what you've got is an imperative. So instead of saying, let an accuser stand, you could say, an accuser must stand. That's what you've got in the prayer, right? Have you thought about this? The prayers that even that Jesus taught us to pray are really commands. Hallowed be your name. Give us this day. You're, you're, you're commanding God to do things for you. That's what's going on in this prayer. The psalmist is commanding the Lord. An accuser must stand. Now, uh, as we approach this, um, what we've got, again, I think, is David thinking about people that betrayed, betrayed him in his own life, expecting a figure like Judas, who is going to betray Jesus. Um, I have listened and, and watched people skip chapters of the Bible like Psalm 109. Um, and so our first point of application here, before we've even started, is don't skip passages like this that you don't understand. Don't skip passages like this. Here, here's, here's application uh, number two, after you've not skipped it. Number two, be warned. Be warned, and you should be terrified by a chapter like this. This, this. this is a terrifying prayer. This is a true statement of what must happen to people who reject the authority of God, set aside the instructions in God's Word, and set themselves up as opponents to God's Messiah, God's King. You want to go that route? This is what awaits you. So number one, don't skip it. Number two, be warned. Uh, we'll, I'll give you some more applications as we go. Let's, let's start looking at Psalm 109. Verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 109 is all about speech. It's all about what, what comes out of people's mouths. Look at verse 1. Be not silent, O God of my praise. The psalmist, he's about to go into all the ways that wicked people are talking bad about him. And his response is not, give me words to argue them down. No, his response is, God, don't be silent. You see what the psalmist is modeling? Do not take revenge, my beloved, but leave room for wrath. The psalmist is not taking this into his own hands. He's calling on the Lord. They're talking bad about me. You don't be silent. Oh, God of my praise, what I'm going to do is praise. Look at verse 2. For wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me. Okay, so all this is verbal, isn't it? It's all talk. They're talking about him. They're accusing him. They're encircling him with words of hate. Look at his verbal Response at the end of verse 4, I give myself to prayer. There's two, there's two things, two ways that the psalmist talks. End of verse 1, praise. End of verse 2, prayer. He is not responding to all these people speaking ill of him. Do you remember Jesus? He was led like a lamb that is silent before its shearers. This is, this is the one who left us an example that we should follow in his steps. Be not silent, O God of my praise. And, and clearly, the psalmist 
has been good to these people. Look at verse 4. In return for my love, for my love they accuse me. Verse 5. They reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. So David is saying, I was good to those who betrayed me. And he's expecting the future king from his line, his descendant, his seed, to be good to those who betrayed him. Now in verses 6 through 15, we've had some plural uh, references in verses 1 through 5. Wicked and deceitful mouths. And then verse 3, they encircle me. But it's all going to hone in on this one person in verses 6 through 15. This one arch enemy. This one traitor. And, and this person's going to be in view, and uh, David is going to put on the lips of the future king a prayer about this person. So verse 6, appoint a wicked man against him. And then again, let an accuser, but let's do it, an accuser must stand at his right hand. If we do it that way, if we say an accuser must, you know what it brings in? It brings in the idea that this is what he deserves This is what is just. And as we go through this passage, really what you've got is God's law applied to a rebel. This is what must happen to people who disregard God's authority, set aside God's word, and oppose God's king. This is what must come upon them. Maybe maybe you've watched someone living a dissolute and and awful lifestyle, and they're treacherous, treacherous to everybody in their lives, and they never pay back loans, and they steal from anybody that they can get things from, and you know what you think? You think, that person's not going to live very long. That person's not going to make it very far. That person's going to defraud everybody in their life. That person is going to leave wreckage in their wake, and that's what the psalmist is praying. Look at verse 7. When he is tried, he must come forth guilty because he is i mean it's it's a it's a command of the lord let him come forth guilty but he he will this is a command he must come forth guilty because he's guilty and then at the end of verse 7 let his prayer be counted as sin i think what the psalmist is doing is he's saying from looking at the way that this person has conducted himself from looking at his choices and his preferences and his desires What kind of things is he going to pray for? Is he going to pray for God to be exalted above the heavens? Is he going to pray for God's glory to be over all the earth? No, that's not what he's going to pray for. He's going to pray to get away with it. He's going to pray that there will be more things for him to steal. He's going to pray that, that people that can't defend themselves are going to be in his path. All his prayers are going to be so that he can accomplish his sin. His prayer must be counted as sin because He's got sinful desires, and that's what he wants. Verse 8, his days must be few. He's going to die young because he's not chosen the path to life. Remember uh, Deuteronomy? Moses says, look, I put before you today life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life. This guy hasn't chosen life. His days must be few. Not only has he lived in a way that he's certain to get himself cut off young, he's lived in a way that he's not been faithful and he's not conducted himself with integrity. Therefore, another, look at the end of verse 8, may another, another must take his office. 
He has not discharged his duties with, with faithfulness and integrity and excellence, so somebody else is going to have to do the job that he was supposed to do. And when he is cut down young, verse 9, when his deeds are visited upon his head and he dies young, his children must be fatherless. They're going to be orphans. His wife must be a widow because of the way he's lived. And because he didn't save and work hard, because he didn't choose the path to life and blessing, there aren't going to be any savings for those orphaned children. So verse 10 His children must wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. And because he didn't pay back his loans, well, the creditor's going to come calling. Verse 11, the creditor must seize all that he has, and strangers must plunder the fruits of his toil. They're going to take everything that's left because he ripped them off while he was alive. He didn't pay them back. Don't skip it. Be warned. This is nothing less than a prayer for justice. That's what this is. You want social justice? This is what it looks like. You rip people off, the creditor seizes all you have after your life ends before it should have. You want social justice? That's what justice looks like. Verse 12. Because of the way that this guy treated people, right? He, he lied to everybody in his life. He, he abused the poor and needy. He never paid back loans. He took advantage of anybody that was weak in his life. Verse 12, there must be no one to extend kindness to him. He's got no savior, nor any to pity his fatherless children. There is going to be nobody that feels sorry for this guy. I, I, don't, I don't know if you've experienced people like this in your life. You, you might be reacting, wow, this is really harsh. But I suspect that, that, that you've known somebody that's gotten to this point in your life where you're like, look, I've done everything I can do for this person. And they've gotten to a point where the best thing for me to do is close the door. The best thing for me to do is let them suffer the consequences of their actions. That's what's going on here. Verse 13, his posterity must be cut off. His name must be blotted out in the second generation. And here, verse 14, I think we, we want to think our way through this. Verse 14, may the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. Here's what I think is, is informing this. Unrepentant people, people who don't repent of their sins, it, which, you know, if you're, if, you're not, if you're not aware of this, the way to get your sins forgiven, according to the Bible, is to repent and seek forgiveness, right? But unrepentant people don't teach their children to repent. Kind of follows, doesn't it? And the unrepentant children of unrepentant fathers don't teach their children to repent. And in the Old Testament in particular, the faith is passed down through the generations. And, and the Lord says this of himself in Exodus 34, 6 and 7. He says that he is a God who visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. May the iniquity of his fathers, his unrepentant fathers, be remembered before the Lord and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Now, I, in all prayers like this, there's this implicit caveat. If he repents, if he seeks forgiveness, if he calls on the name of the Lord, of course, show him mercy. But if he's going to continue in resolute opposition to the Lord, to the Messiah, to God's kingdom, let justice be done upon him. 
the sins of his father and his mother. Verse 14, verse 15, let them be before the Lord continually that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Um, I don't know, I suspect, I don't know if you ever feel anger in response to the actions of the wicked. You hear about some awful thing that somebody's done, and I, if, if you want some stories, I could tell you some stories of things that people have done where they've harmed children or they have left their wives vulnerable because of their dissolute lifestyle. I mean, I heard, I heard um, a friend of mine narrated to me this week about how the dissolute, drunken lifestyle of the leader of a company resulted in 81 of the 86 people who worked in his company losing their jobs. That's wickedness. That's irresponsibility. That's, that's stupid folly that ruins other people's lives. You want some stories, I'll tell you some stories. Here's another point of application to a psalm like this. Be comforted. Be comforted. God is just. God's justice, severe and scorching as it may seem, is actually a comfort to those wronged by the wicked. You don't have to take things into your own hands. You don't have to repay evil for evil. You can leave room for wrath because you're comforted by God's justice. Don't skip it. Be warned. Be comforted. Leave room for God's wrath. And here's another point of application in response to a prayer like this. Share the gospel. Share the gospel. Uh, in verses 16 through 20, David explains why this person um, deserves the prayer that he's just prayed in verses 6 through 15. Look at verse 16. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. The poor, the needy, the brokenhearted, these are people that don't have defenders. They don't have people that can stand up for them. And what this person does is not, I'm going to stand up for them. I'm going to show kindness to them. The word kindness there is the word steadfast love. He didn't show God's loyal, steadfast love to them. Instead, he looked at them and he said, I can, I can take advantage of these people. I can get stuff from these people. I can get what I want from these people because there's nobody to defend them. Verse 17, he loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. I had a conversation this week with one of my children, and basically I was giving them this application point. Do you want to avoid this? Do you want to avoid the Bible talking this way about what must happen to you? You need to recognize what blessing and cursing are. Cursing is, I'm trying to make everybody in my life miserable. I'm trying to be mean to everybody around me. Blessing is, I'm trying to make everybody in my life happy. I'm trying to sacrifice myself for their benefit. What's in your heart? You trying to make everybody around you miserable? You trying to make them happy. Which is it? You know how we know? Look at, look at the way you talk to people. Look at the way you talk about people. If you love to curse, curses are going to come upon you. If you don't delight in blessing, it's going to be far from you. Verse 18, he clothed himself with cursing as his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. It's like the cursings that he clothes himself with, they begin to pervade everything about him. 
and he can't get away from it. Verse 19, may it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward, the recompense of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. You oppose the Messiah, this is what you deserve. This is just recompense. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, won't you turn? Won't you live? Won't you decide that you don't want these curses called down upon you by the almighty King of Kings? Look, the gates to Eden stand there at the end of the straight and narrow path. Let's walk together down that way that we might avoid the wrath. David now pleads for, pleads for himself in verses 21 through 25, and this is so instructive. Um, or the, the king, the future king, is now... Um, so he, it, there's an imp, imprecation against the wicked in verses 6 through 15, and then there's a petition that the king speaks for himself in verses 21 through 25. And there is a, a very interesting contrast between these two. For the wicked, it's like what David is saying this, may his actions be visited upon him. May he get what he deserves from what he's done. When he prays about himself, he doesn't bring himself into the picture. When he prays about himself, he appeals to who the Lord is. Look at verse 21. But you, O God, my Lord, deal with me, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. You see what David didn't say? Look at what I've done. Look at my righteousness. Look at my character. Look at how good I... None of that. God, for your name's sake, deal with me. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. Look, this is the path to salvation. You want justice? Let your deeds be what you're rewarded for. You want mercy? Let God's character be what you appeal to for the way that God is going to treat you. The, the only thing the king points to about himself is his affliction and need and pierced heart. Look at verse 22. For I am poor and needy and my heart is stricken within me. The king knows, David knows, that the Lord loves to show his greatness by helping the needy. So he presents himself to the Lord in his need. He comes humbly because he knows that God opposes the, prou the proud. I am poor and needy. My heart is stricken within me. He, he points to the brevity of his life in verse 23. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. I, I'm, I'm frail. I'm fragile. Verse 24. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. And he, and he doesn't have a, a reputation in the community. Verse 25, I'm an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. David is not marching before the Lord saying, look how great and mighty and awesome I am and you should help me because you need me. No, because of your steadfast love, because of your character, help me in my need. This continues in verses 26 through 31. Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. Don't, Lord, I'm not asking that you show my might in this. 
Show your might. This is your hand, O Lord. You have done it. Let them curse, you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. There's another promise in the Bible for you. The Lord stands at the right hand of the needy one. The visitation of God's justice does lead some people to repentance, and they're saved through judgment. For those who don't repent, however, God's righteousness justly recompenses them for their evil. And in the process, God's servants are delivered. This is what makes the wicked like chaff that the wind drives away. It's God's perfect justice. So don't skip these passages. Be warned by these passages. Be comforted by these passages. Leave room for God's wrath and share the gospel. This is how we must respond to passages like this because as Luke tells us, these statements, they're fulfilled in Judas and, and it's, it's, it's like what, what happened to Jesus is going to happen to us. He said, as they treated me, so they'll treat you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. We're going to have accusers like this and we should respond the same way that David and Jesus have before us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the hope that you have given to us. We thank you for this this book that you've given to us that challenges our intelligence, that changes our hearts by the power of your Spirit, that renews our perspective, and that shows us how to respond to traitors. Lord, we look for the day when you will with exultation, divide up the land and claim it as your own. Lord, we pray that you would make us faithful until that day comes. We pray that you would help us to live as those who know that you will conquer, those who entrust ourselves to our faithful creator. We love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.